Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. My guest today is Catherine Ann Power, who spent 14 years on the FBI's 10 most wanted list and in total 23 years living as a fugitive. She grew up in Denver, an honor student from a conservative Catholic family of seven children, and in a wild stab at independence, accepted a scholarship to Brandeis University. This was 1967, a watershed moment of explosive rebellion, not only to the Vietnam War, but our country's political, social, and racial hegemony over the poor, women, and people of color. While involved in the effort to end the war in Vietnam, she came to see herself as a warrior against the government itself and joined a group that included former convicts in a mission to rob banks and finance the resistance. On September 23, 1970, while holding up a bank in Brighton, a Boston policeman was fatally shot by one of the ex-cons who were all caught soon after. Catherine managed to elude arrest for almost a decade before settling in Oregon, where she had a son, married, and worked various jobs until the overwhelming stress drove her to therapy and the decision to surrender, which entailed six years of prison time and a complete reevaluation of her life. Today we're discussing her new book, Surrender, My Journey from Gorilla to Grandmother. Catherine Ann Power, it is my pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me, Ira. So there were arguably millions of students against the war in Vietnam, many engaged in protests that became violent, often as a result of government provocation, but only a small portion of those actually tried to launch a guerrilla insurgency. Can you explain the influences affecting you, both political and after much reflection, personal, by which you became one of them? I want to start with uh, the politics of rage, because I think that is uh, a key in that turn toward violence. We certainly studied revolutions uh, in the left as students at, at Brandeis. We had radical sociology professors. They there were professors with a Marxist and other kinds of leftist analysis everywhere. And of course, it was the new left, the influence of, um, say, the Czech uprising, and that kind of open vitality that was very appealing. I want to say also that war was our model of change. There were the anti-colonial revolutions the successful ones, and then the ongoing ones against the Portuguese uh, colonial systems in Africa. And so it, it was thinkable to imagine that revolution m- might be a thing that could happen. I, in later years, learned that Henry Kissinger thought that the country was on the verge of revolution. And that was why he counseled Gerald Ford that he couldn't go back into Vietnam over the 
uh, uh, house and missing in action. So it, I, I would say that it was, it was a, a tiny minority position, but it was thinkable by a lot of people. Uh, the key I want to say there, though, is the sense of frustrated rage that we could not make the war stop. And that we had exhausted, we had followed all the rules. Sometimes I say we were the last generation that believed in democracy because we'd lobbied, we'd elected representatives, we'd even elected a president who promised to stop the war. And what happened was that the war kept expanding. Okay. And so that that was the kind of the cultural and political context. But then there's also my own personal context where I, um, in, in my book, I describe this move from idealist to activist to militant, and then to guerrilla. And I was raised to be an idealist and to be engaged in the world. And and I really had a strong sense of personal responsibility toward that. But I also brought, you know, my own psychodynamics to that. So in a sense, I think I came to realize that in my family, I had a role. We had a we our, our our dad suffered from depression, and it was a rageful depression, and it was it was really frightening and felt homicidal. And one of my roles in the family was to keep his attention on me by being, you know, really ideal and perfect, and keep the other children safe. And in looking at Vietnam, I think. Uh, my experience was that the father was burning the children, and I had failed in my role in the family system. And I just, like, had no insight into that. And it really, I, it warped my judgment okay. severely. Okay. So you eluded the law for over two decades. On occasion actually being stopped by police, recognized by neighbors, even outed by a deranged person you confided in. You worked jobs, and you quit when you felt exploited. You started various businesses. You even visited your parents. How is it possible to live an ordinary life under the radar for so long? Well, in those years, many people were doing it, um, not only in the process of building what we thought of as a revolutionary underground, which involved people from the Catholic left and people from the weather underground and other leftist revolutionary organizations, but also all kinds of resistors and deserters uh, from the military. So if there was kind of, there was a lot of the informal economy um, and, you know, also people under the radar, like men evading child support payments, working off the books. So part of that was a level of informal economy that mostly doesn't exist anymore, except undocumented immigrants are certainly in it. 
Um, and then once I had papers, once I had a, an actual birth certificate and social security number, then I could just establish an identity and continuity was a key there. And, you know, there are two things. One is that I was a very ordinary person and also I'm white and I can pass for middle class. And that kind of people, people believe them when they say what they are in this society and accept them and treat them. I, you know, I was a, a welcome neighbor. Um, I was a welcome worker, except that I organized the union in a couple of places that I worked. Um, and, and so part of it is just to show up at every day, um, being a real person, r- relating, <clears throat> relating to people like a real person. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking with Catherine Ann Power, who spent 23 years as a fugitive from the FBI after an anti-Vietnam war action went terribly wrong and a police officer was murdered. We're discussing her new book, Surrender, My Journey from Gorilla to Grandma. After about 20 years in hiding, Catherine, you confessed who you were to a therapist. Can you describe the stress you were enduring, the psychic weight you carried, and only because you brought up the word, the state of your soul that drove you to this enormous decision? I came to a point, I I had depression, I realized, um, probably from childhood, and and one of my ways of managing it was to be a workaholic. Um, that's actually pretty common. And it's and inevitably the workaholic kind of binge that I was on all came crashing down. And I was literally so depressed that I couldn't leave the house. I barely could talk. I barely could move. And I saw an ad in the local paper for a workshop on women and depression. And I said, I have to go to this. And I went and um, I I thought certainly it was going to be a nurse teaching us all how to manage depression with a lifestyle of running and not eating sugar. I was just sure that's what it would be. And instead, it was a a therapist, and I just about ran screaming from the room, but I was always cool, so I didn't do that. Um, And she went around the room. First, she asked each of us why we were there, and uh, I, I said I couldn't talk without crying. And then she said something that just unlocked everything for me. She said to each of us, where is your soul in all of this? And I felt like that was what was wrong with me. That when when you're just living a totally wrong life, when everything about your life is wrong, that's more than a psychological problem. And I, it made me trust her that she saw the world with that component as well. And uh, through the few sessions of the group, we talked about 
family of origin issues. And I had a story that I was alienated from my family of origin. We were estranged over the Vietnam War. And she said, you'll never get better if you can't deal with your family of origin issues. And I, I just, I felt like I needed to tell her why I couldn't because I had come to trust her. And so I told her that I was a fugitive and uh, that I was wanted for very serious crimes. And she and I started talking about what was possible in the world that I was living in. And so she suggested that I consult an attorney that she thought could be trusted to be careful and discreet. And that was the beginning of uh, uh, undoing this this split in my life that had left me so bereft. Mm -hmm. Although you were originally promised you would do your time in Oregon, near your husband and son, and support people. You were forced to serve six years at MCI Framingham. Your time, as you write in the book, was full of humiliations and petty cruelty, the kind we'd expect from our prison system. But you also describe undergoing enormous changes for the good. So I'd like you to tell us how you can wake up in a cell, endure the state's attempt to control every aspect of your life, and still write that prison can become a place to become well, a place to study and learn, and a place for spiritual growth? Prison is full of contradictions. And one of the things that happens there, and it it, it changes, uh, there are fashions in how open or closed prisons are. Right now, for instance, uh, as I understand it, MCI Framingham is more closed than it was when I was there. And it was pretty closed when I was there. And yet there is what they call programming. There's education. There's the chaplaincies. There are various recreational programs because they have to keep people stimulated. They have to fill the time. It's dangerous in a prison if there's nothing to do. Uh, It's much more safe for the prison to keep the people who are there oriented toward uh, activity that's constructive. When I was, when I arrived at Framingham, I was met by a psychologist who I came to trust and who was my therapist for several years. And the, the, the thing about real therapy is that it's not concerned with punishment. That's considered already happening. That's a background to reality. It's concerned with insight. And it can only happen if there's, you know, between the therapist and and myself, there was 
a belief in redeemability, a, a belief in growth and healing, uh, a willingness on my part to look at the most shameful and hurtful things I'd ever done that willingness could only happen if shame was not in the room, if even if blame was not in the room. Um, Ed St. John, my therapist, was willing to work with people who were considered monsters. And his only expectation was that I be willing to be truly honest in exploring what I had done. He made it a safe place. And the other thing that made it a safe place for me was the Catholic chaplaincy. Uh, I wasn't a practicing Catholic for my years as a fugitive, and I certainly really didn't still have the same belief in theology as the church I was raised with, but some of its ritual was very appealing. And also, the socially acting out the theology of redemption to to embrace the people who were in prison and to meet them as whole human beings who were full of the potential, if not the actual, of redemption. And so there were volunteers who came in, and there were um, there was a, a lot of really creative programs run by the Catholic chaplaincy. It was called Fully Alive, and and that's really the impact that it had. Mm-hmm. And then the education department was another place where people were met in their present moment and seen in their potential for human growth. And that was happening um, with Pell Grants in the community college level, was happening in the Boston University Prison Education Program, and it was happening in the programs of the Education Department of the Prison that were about GED and learning English as a second language, everywhere where education was happening, it was a tremendously humanizing effect. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking with a former bank-robbing urban guerrilla who went underground, served time in prison, and labored to make atonement for her actions. My guest is Catherine Ann Power. Her new book is Surrender, My Journey from Guerrilla to Grandma. So, Catherine, there aren't many funny parts of your book, but I thought I would lighten this up for a minute. Um, there is your practice of turning the humiliation of a strip search into a dance. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Um, you know, one of the really important teachings that I took into prison with me was the Buddhist idea that aversion only increases our suffering. And so. I I would pay attention, like, I, I had a practice of a willingness to show up at experiences, letting them show me what they could be, instead of kind of holding strongly that I already knew what they were. 
And so if, if I had a visit, then after the visit, I had to go through a thrift search, literally strip myself there and expose myself to the officer who's doing the search. Uh, and it, I, I was, as I was doing it, I, I was getting these commands, do this, do this, do this. And I was moving my, I just realized I was moving my body naked in a rhythmic way. And suddenly it just felt miraculous to be able to do that. And so I just took, I took the strip search as an opportunity. I think maybe that's a, a key word there. I took a lot of things as opportunities to just show up and be in life, be in my body, be in what it remembered from the free world and find what I could find in that very constrained world. Your marriage did not survive your prison sentence, and yet your son, who was a teenager at the time, thrived in his way. How do you explain that? Well, I I explain it partly by thinking about what a remarkable person he is. He 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 was then and he continues to be thoughtful and he found he had good some good support system i have to say uh he he dropped out of high school and i was glad because i felt that it it was not a good support system where he was met constantly with criticism for what were seen as his failures rather than uh, with respect for what was seen as his survival and thriving. Um, he he just, he's a really alive being, and he's really on the earth. And I think that some of the friends that I was close to uh, were really supportive and helpful to him. And uh, my friend Marie was like his other mother, and uh, and so he made it through, and I'm very grateful for that. He also started, uh, you know, he arrived at adulthood young. He and his uh, wife had their first child at 20, and that really attached them both to life in a wonderful way. The title of your book is Surrender, and of course, it means much more than surrendering to the authorities. You write that to surrender is a profound act of faith, perhaps especially in a world of so much violence, greed, and equality. So what ultimately does surrender mean to you? To me, surrender means to be willing to be with things as they are, but I don't mean like in a passive way. I mean that this moment, the conditions of this moment, these are the initial conditions for the rest of time. And in complex systems, that means that changes in this moment can have unimaginable and unpredictable 
impacts and effects on the outcome of what happens next. And so surrender for me means to be in deep gratitude with this moment, with everything that brought this moment into being. And to be aware of the possibilities in this moment to act in ways that might create change, in ways that we can't imagine or predict will create change, but that if we act with um, with whatever mindfulness we can muster and with deep compassion, then what happens next will be part of the ongoing co-creating that we are doing with the universe. So, so, so go right ahead. And so instead of aversion and pushing away and hating what is, uh, to be with it, to say, how does this arise? What are, what's operating here? What's acting here? What does it seem like to the people involved? And where are the moments of possible change in that? So the obvious question is, how do we cope today in a world that's as bad, arguably even worse, than the world that you were reacting to 50 years ago? What do you say to young activists who are every bit as furious as you were? One thing I want to say is, I want to start with this, uh, Dave Dellinger came to visit me several times in prison. He's somebody whose work I just respected tremendously. And his book, it's, it's out of print now, but it's still available like in libraries and so forth, More Power Than We Know, that we need to look at all the power that we do have because um, I'm going to slip into a little political theory here dominator systems, which is what, you know, dominator systems are, are ascendant right now. And this is a term I, uh, I owe to um, Walter Wink, who's a Christian theologian and peace activist. But dominator systems, they, they, they are natural formations. They arise, and so are mutualistic systems. They are natural formations. They arise. They change. Well, dominator systems are very good at maintaining themselves. And one of the ways they do it is by drawing us into conflicts head-to-head where they are stronger. And so one of the things is that it limits our vision about where our power really might be, where our capacity to create the new world and uh, dry up the current world might exist. And so, for instance, every place where we can take action in common, we are building a new world. So we resist the dominance. You know, Joanna Macy calls these things holding actions, and I think that's a really good way of understanding it. So so I would say, see where your power to create change is. Um, in Marxist terms, we call it heightening the contradictions. Uh, 
Everything is full of contradictions. Everything is falling apart at the same time as it's holding together. Notice where it's falling apart. Today we've been talking with Catherine Ann Power. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his tech work on the show. Surrender was recently published by Practical Peace Publishing. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on reckoning with our actions and taking honest responsibility one interview at a time. Bye for now. Thank mm-hmm. you.